0: Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about remote remote graphical workstations in the vein of the AWS Workspaces projects.
1: Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details.
0: So in the last episode, we were talking about working away from our kind of home workstations or the home office kind of things. And we touched very briefly on what Amazon calls a workspace. Um, Google has technology for this. There's other cloud service providers that have various things. And I am a huge fan of persisting state somewhere that isn't local to you that you can have a cloud provider or somebody else sort of manage that especially for things like workstations that you don't use all that often and you can really dig into the benefits of kind of paying as you go rather than buying up front. Whatever happened to SSH? (laughs) I mean SSH is great but have you ever tried have you ever actually tried to X-forward um, a, a a Chrome session through an SSH <laughs> channel? <laughs> yes, like, I have
1: tried to X-forward stuff through SSH. It works great until you start video editing.
0: <laughs> or browsing a simple web page with just Yeah, I was going to say, just scroll in a web browser and you'll, yeah. So a lot of this comes out, comes down to latency. A lot of this comes down to having the right pieces assembled in the right places. And like Google has a, an internal thing that they have alluded to occasionally publicly that they do not make available as far as I know to the, the people at large. But essentially it is a virtual machine running in a Google data center somewhere and users connect to them and use them as kind of you know full-on production workstations. And that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting way to approach...
2: I'm gonna say paying for hardware, but it's, I guess it's really kind of abstracting away hardware because if you think about buying a, a typical laptop, uh, especially from a company's point of view, but even from a personal point of view, let's say you you know you buy a let's just go with a MacBook Pro. So you're you're talking anywhere from two to three thousand dollars. You're going to add Apple Care on that because you just paid two or three thousand dollars. Once you add up all those expenses and then you break it down to a monthly cost. These services are roughly in the same ballpark. Sometimes they could be a little cheaper. Sometimes they can be a little more expensive. But then the benefit is that if you don't run it all the time, it will be cheaper. And theoretically, you're getting hardware upgrades throughout that three-year or whatever lifecycle that you're using the, the AWS Workspace, for instance. Whereas with your laptop, it's going to be the same hardware until you get rid of it.
1: I mean, the thing that really fascinates me is the, the concept of I could take my ZFS volumes, uh, push those into my cloud station, whatever I have it, have a um, a block store dedicated for my ZFS file system and use my machine in the cloud with all of my data, have that block device set up for regular snapshots, and I can shut down the the instance and remove the block store and a couple days later when i want to log in again i just rehydrate my zfs volume from its snapshot and s3 or gcs and mount it back to a new machine and it's not super slow and i don't have to keep it running all the time and it's much more
2: powerful than what i've got at home yeah i mean that's that's the other benefit right is that Okay, so you buy the Mac Pro and you try to get the the most, the most fastest processors that you can afford or the most memory that you can afford, but it, it's limited. Whereas with these cloud services, you can actually get some very beefy machines with some beefy add-ons, like a, a huge... I'm working on a big project, you know, spin up a bigger
1: VM and uh, ex- rehydrate my ZFS and let's go.
2: Exactly. And then once you don't need all that power, you just spin it down. So it's it's very practical in a lot of ways but i think even with those you're going to have the same issue that you have uh as we joked about with x forwarding and that is latency between your whatever machine you're using to connect to that cloud instance uh and and the cloud instance
0: yeah so so choosing your data center choosing your service provider is crucial in this also choosing the appropriately sized block storage So remember that cloud vendors scale IOPS with the size of volumes, generally speaking. So especially like in GCP, if you're you're trying to build one of these out in GCP somewhere, the larger the disk is, the more IOPS it gets both for standard and for SSDs. And that is going to be a huge driver of your ability to have this be performant.
2: Yeah, that, that is a negative um, is that you will have to spend more money up front on a cloud provider to get, more performance compared to if you were to buy the hardware outright. Like, if you're just looking at raw performance, you're going to lose. Where you
0: where it comes out ahead is the flexibility. Yeah, and when you say more, more cost up front, the, the outlay for like an AWS Cloud Spaces instance with the auto stop feature turned on, which essentially means that when you're idled, it pauses the VM, so it's not going to keep on running when you're not logged into it and you can there's a window you can set for how long that is. It's about eighty bucks a month for a reasonable machine and that's that's your ongoing cost. Which honestly isn't terrible. Right. I mean I guess I wasn't meaning like
2: it a, a huge upfront cost. I mean I guess I'm more meaning like you take a fixed cost for a MacBook and you divide it by, you know, three years, and then that monthly cost is going to be lower most likely than if you were to provision a machine to get similar IOP. Performance.
0: Ah, well, like the I don't have the pricing page directly in front of me, unfortunately. I thought I would thought I did, and I was looking for it, and I don't. Whatever. Um, but you can get like a 16 core, 64 gig of RAM instance in the cloud for that 80 bucks a month. That is very much a reasonable workstation to be picking up. Oh yeah, and they're not that expensive, like on the whole. So if you if you if you figure that you you buy a new workstation every three years and you put a couple of grand into it this is really close
2: yeah no that that's that's very good and and the nice thing is you don't have to worry about the underlying hardware you don't have to worry about if it if a cpu goes bad or p um, power supply goes bad or, or
0: you know whatever you you don't have to worry about it
1: i love changing hard drives
0: <laughs> what about raid controllers i love i love raid controllers and power supplies those are my two favorites
1: so building uh, my last machine, I was testing out the machine and the SATA controller built into the motherboard was faulty. Oof. Things I never want to deal with again. Yeah. And thank you, ZFS, for
2: not corrupting my data. So then what is you you have the, the cloud instance and that's great, but then what are you doing to
0: connect to the cloud instance? So the, the Amazon Workspace stuff has a GUI client that runs on just about everything. So you can run it on Windows, you can run it on Linux, you can run it on Mac, you can run it on iPads and Fire tablets and Android phones and anything. So the idea is that you have a secure connection that goes up to Amazon's networking infrastructure that we all know reasonably well and understand kind of its foibles, but also respect its bandwidth and its privacy. And like it, Amazon, one of the places Amazon is not kind of messing around. The client itself is fine. It's not amazing, but it's fine and it works. Um, but like a lot of things in life, um, when you're relying on one vendor for their proprietary client to their proprietary protocol, that's how it's going to be. However, because it's their own thing, it is fairly snappy in terms of respons- responsiveness and stuff. I mean, if you're trying to do 60 frame a second video, you're going to have a bad time. But that is probably limited by your internet connection rather than by necessarily the client protocol. But in terms of like using it, like as, using it as as a developer workstation, compiling software, reading documentation, visiting websites, those kinds of things, it's great.
1: Yeah, that's the the whole idea. Is my permanent workstation is now in the cloud and follows me where I want to go. Except you've got to get to it in GCP. Has um, graphical workstations as well and several tutorials, I'll toss one into the show notes of how to create your own GCP cloud station whatever you want to call it um, but for the uh, process of dealing with the, the display and the interaction of USB and keyboards and all that they've partnered with a company called Teradici. I think is how you pronounce that and they have a proprietary protocol, requires a license, and you've got to either install the client on your machine to be able to take use of that of that technology stack. Or, you can buy a thin client from them for probably even more expensive. But that, I was disappointed because really proprietary and lots of money up front to kind of get started, and that seems uncool.
0: Is so the amazon workspaces um earlier this year announced support for webcams i have not tried this out myself yet but there is they they, amazon claims no additional charge on this one so they've just they've added a driver that you have to install on the host os that lets you pass things through to the to their client protocol application thing is a spice protocol still a thing (laughs) Oh, it's still around I mean, protocols never die. Well, yeah. Um, no machine's still out there. I was trying to. I tried that a couple months ago for a very for an unrelated thing that was. I forgot how much I hate that protocol.
2: <laughs> well, I remember the uproar. Uh, which which project that Red Hat or company that Red Hat acquired or something, and you know, there was all this talk of Spice, and then it it
0: died back down again.
1: It's the perpetual cyclical nature of thin
0: clients. <laughs> I mean, you joke, but that has been a thing that we have talked about this, this, this show a lot that, you know, in, in the before time you had big expensive computers in the middle and you had, you know, VT100s or whatever stuck on serial lines off off to the edge. So you could access you could share access to this huge expensive machine.
1: I mean, the concept of a thin client and getting access to it has come and gone as as often as anything else in this industry as any other fad.
0: Yeah, and this is essentially VMware VDI, but hosted by Amazon or Google or whoever. So you have virtual desktops provisioned by a central authority. You can roll your own images. You can use all of your image building tools and knowledge that you have with the cloud providers to create baseline images. So if you're doing this for like an organization or you're doing this for your company and not just for hobbyist use, you can make sure that the image that the people are booting up when they initially log in is kind of the, the centrally blessed, understood, supported established image that has all the things you want on it
1: and for working for a company uh that you know is producing a product and obviously has you know a security stance the the concept that you could pass out completely generic machines or have people use personal machines and connect securely to a cloud station and from that cloud station is the blessed place
0: to be able to do work that's that's awfully powerful and awfully tempting so the sticking point there, honestly, is that a lot of developers over the last 15 years have moved and invested heavily into using MacBooks as their primary local development environment. Hasn't everyone? Because, But yes, but because of Apple's licensing, no cloud provider will be offering a macOS-based virtual desktop in the cloud for anybody to be logging into and using. Apple's licensing very clearly says... You must have a piece of hardware to run that operating system on, that pretty much excludes this What's whole business.
1: that free BSD uh, uh, distro that's called Hello, uh, that's built to
0: emulate a Mac desktop? <laughs> but it's still not a Mac desktop. Yeah, and folks have so much. <laughs> I know so much time put into that. I am, will always make fun of people and their their dependence on Mac. Jared. Yeah, you can't port install Aqua. So, well, I mean when. But Jack, when you when you met me all those years ago, I was a diehard Mac user and I had been a diehard Mac user all my life. And now that I'm I I use Linux machines for personal and for work and all of the things that I do that way. I'm I'm fully converted. But there's a lot of folks that I I know that I respect that I work with who are abhorrent to the idea of using a Linux machine as their primary kind of workspace, their primary workstation, their primary Cloud Station, whatever we're calling it, and
1: frankly, at at this level in my career, I will gladly say I don't blame them.
2: Yeah, I the mean, the Macs
1: work really, really, fantastically well as a client, and it's taken anybody else decades to catch up and to build any sort of commercial product that that enables a developer environment that rivals what you can do on a Mac. Rivals.
2: Yeah. I'm, there we go. I'm not trying to defend Apple here or whatever. I mean, for me, the longest time, and I'm, I'm still a heavy Mac user, um, but I've always been on the professional side. Well, I guess even my personal side, I've, I've always had a Linux server around. I've always done like air quote heavy lifting on Linux. It's just my preferred front end or client has been Mac OS for the longest time. Um, although I will stay, say that... Um, over the years, Apple has done everything possible to make people hate and despise
0: the Mac. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially for software quality on Mac OS. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very sad. It's um, just, what more can
1: you add to steal focus from me? Literally. What? Docker update? You changed my
2: workstation? Well, and and so that's why I've moved... Workspace? All, all of my, all my development now has moved to a Linux box. Um, I either either connect to it from an iPad um, Pro or from a Mac, but it's only through the terminal. I don't even run Docker locally on the Mac anymore. Everything is ran on my server, uh, which is Linux, and then I don't have to deal with that mess anymore. And it makes the the client the the client more uh, you know much like a thin client, although it's a very expensive thin client. Yeah, and
1: in a lot of ways that's the the environment I envision. Being able to shove into a cloud, start up when I need it, and ignore it when I don't. Right. And have it perfectly backed up. And I trust GCP to not lose what's in GCS. And Amazon, as long as it's not in U.S.
2: East one. <laughs> well, they, they may, they're not going to lose it. You just may not be able to get to it for a while. <laughs> yeah,
0: there is a difference there. <laughs> So I haven't actually used this, but I know that Visual Studio Code has a bunch of plugins that allow you to have... Because essentially, essentially Visual Studio Code is an Electron app. It's a a web wrapper around a UI and a development environment.
1: And everybody I know is using Visual
0: Studio Code now. It's kind of crazy. So I'm looking at their Visual Studio Code documentation, and they have a setup that you basically use VS Code on your local machine as a UI server and then it sets up an SSH channel and then proxies um, commands and code and other things through to a Linux machine somewhere else. And this allows you to use the remote machine as your build environment to talk to firewalls and networks and databases and all of those kinds of things and not have any code live on your local machine. And if you're already doing that, you're getting really close to not actually needing to have a Mac anymore, honestly. I have
2: several coworkers who do that currently. They, they Can't
0: you just log into
1: GitHub and hit the, the dot key? And-
2: <laughs> well, they, they run uh, VS Code on their Mac, but then it actually connects to a machine somewhere else to do all the actual heavy lifting. So as you mentioned, no code is actually stored, and they actually can even, you know, you, you can have a pane that's actually a terminal, so you can see, have a terminal from the remote machine, so you don't even have to, you know, switch over to a terminal. Everything's
0: within uh, code. Yeah, and I'll throw a link to the show notes for the, for the VS Code documentation for this, because this is another way of enabling that kind of remote work really, really nicely.
1: Really effectively, yeah
0: from a professional standpoint, like from an organizational standpoint, one of the benefits here is that you don't have code on people's laptops. So if a laptop gets left at the bus station or the airport or whatever, your house gets broken into somebody steals the device, the laptop itself doesn't have anything saved locally. And so for a a foreign attacker, for a state-sponsored attacker or for industrial uh, industrial sabotage or whatever, they're not going to be able to get to The company secrets, company IP, the code that that runs whatever organization you work for. So there's definitely that. And
1: personally, that's much what I want is a Chromebook that I use that stores most everything in the cloud and if somebody steals it, I'm pissed because I have to buy a new one, but they can't access my data and as soon as I open up another Chromebook and log in, boom, it's all there.
2: Um, To go back to kind of truth in clients for a second, I remember way back um when I was I don't want to say first getting into Linux because I was I was already in Linux at that point, but I discovered the LTSP project, the Linux Linux Terminal Server Project. And I remember spending hours and even buying one of those little HP or maybe it was a yeah, I think it was like an HP little like thin client. Um but basically the project was you would set up a central server, a beefy machine, a Linux, you know, Linux machine, and then you would have this LTSP software on there, which basically configured uh, IPXE. And at that point it was something else. I don't think IPXE was around then. Um, It set up a DHCP server, TFTPD, all that stuff, uh, NFS, so that you could then uh, plug in your thin client, boot it up, and it would just, and and configure it to Pixie Boot. And it would go out, it would get the image from this server, and then it would configure it so that it would connect to this central machine and I remember trying to uh, set this up in 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 my house and so that way you, and convince my parents you know hey we can buy a real buy one machine that's really beefy and then we buy all these little thin clients but I never ended up finishing getting it set up and now I,
1: ask me my Vt320 <laughs>
2: the one that says graybeard <laughs> it's not I'm not that it's not that quite old but it's it's still it was an it was an interesting project and it did teach me a lot about especially pixie and um and DNS and those kinds of things. So I, I do appreciate
0: the teaching that it it did give me. Yeah, yeah. On that vein, like that is a masterclass in local networking and debugging. All kinds of other bizarre, especially if you if you're using VLANs in your local network. Like that is a great way to really dig in and understand a lot of the the fundamental parts of that network stack that a lot of people don't ever bother to learn. So I'm. I'm a very big fan of it on the learning side. um, I find the usability of it a little less direct. Well, but I I think
2: to Jack's point earlier, mentioning a Chromebook, I I think that the Thin clients have changed. They are converting into a tablet form uh, or an ultra portable laptop form. And that is now the new Thin client. Instead of it being a very slim PC that, that you plug a display into, it's more of a mobile device that you then put an app on that you can then connect to a some form of remote
0: cloud instance yeah i'm really curious about thin clients these days i am i'm tempted to pick up one especially like you know go, go to craigslist or ebay or something you could have used one that's something that's somebody bought last year during the pandemic and doesn't need anymore because i don't i don't need a big beefy chromebook like you can get chromebooks that are that are really nice, that have, like, lots of memory and have lots of fast Some processors. they are really
1: nice. The common ones are still, like, 4 gig of memory, and that still makes me wig out a bit. But it's a Chromebook. Okay, how does Chrome actually run in 4 gig of memory?
0: Well, there's that. Um, <laughs> but, it, but if I'm going to primarily use it to connect to a remote machine that has a lot more power, yeah, I don't need... I don't need a big beef machine. Like if I'm going to use VS code on the Chromebook in my, my, my dining room, my, li- my living room and have the backend of it running on my file server upstairs, that sounds great. Like that sounds like a really nice way to be able to get into that environment and have, you know, common space there. Cause everything's in get, everything's checked into source control anyway. So and since
1: you can pop open a Linux shell on a Chromebook now and, you know, install Python or SSH where you need to be and, you have that level of familiarity that, that I once missed from that option of, of being able to
0: use it as a, as a gateway to wherever my workstation is. I'm just not entirely sure how to get my hipster, key, my hipster keyboards <laughs> plugged into the Chromebook. <laughs> well, my thing is, is, well, content
1: creation. And, you know, I'm not doing video editing, but we're doing recording and occasionally I like to watch videos, I guess you can do that on any device now, but anything that sort of USB-E that creates data that you later process is something I've not seen good solutions for and I'm kind of nervous about.
0: Yeah, and I'm kind of assuming with this whole thing that I will still have a workstation somewhere when I need to do heavy lifting of AV because that's the one thing that synchronously does not latency kills it and if you're doing something in the cloud if you're doing something in another machine in the house that's where things get bad fast yep so i I do intend to maintain a full-blown workstation at least for now until i find a solution for this or mine with the faulty sata controller (laughs) that too um actually i have a spare sata controller over here if you need it. uh, oh i
1: stuck in an lsi card it works just fine (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah that, that's my spare <laughs> um anyway but the idea of moving my life like hopefully not needing to buy a next big workstation because i, I bought my machine last summer and i think i probably got another three or four years in it yeah that that's be, kind uh, of the
1: point is can i get to the point where i don't need
2: to build this giant hawking machine every three years the only negative I would say is that the clients are going to be more expensive, in my opinion. Like, you know, like I'm using an iPad Pro, which is pretty expensive. But even if you didn't do that, let's say you get a thin client um, or, you know, a smaller computer that, let's say, is a couple hundred dollars. Well, then you need a monitor. If you don't have a monitor and you need to, you know, you're going to want to buy, like, at least a 4K monitor, that's that's going to be another four or $500. So now you're... Oh,
1: 4Ks are expensive still. Yeah. But I'm sure oh, you I've can got, attach that to monitors. your Raspberry Pi 400.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: I've got monitors coming out of my ears, dude. I'm fine on the. Monitors. <laughs> well, yeah,
2: you, yeah, you are. But I'm saying, if someone who was going to start fresh with this, their still their their thin client is still going to be fairly expensive.
1: You know, if you're running Linux, I would recommend a standard def monitor. Uh, Linux, the, the 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 year of the Linux desktop has come and gone. Fonts look better on Linux than I think any other operating system,
2: especially
1: Mac.
0: I, Provided you're not trying to do the high DPI trick.
2: Yeah, I was about to say I'm. I'm going to have to go against you on that one, Jack, because I actually, I actually have a Linux desktop hooked up to an ex- the exact same 4K monitor that I have a Mac connected to, and the fonts are not as crisp as it is on this Mac.
1: The fonts on working with the Mac, the display, as much as I try to do to it, didn't look only look only did not look like crap when I used a 4K monitor. If I try to get the Mac to talk to a standard def or a 14p monitor, I was questioning if they were doing this on purpose to make me upgrade my monitor.
2: Oh, I I agree with you there. I mean, I've even used, you know, back in the day, a Thunderbolt display. And to me, the the fonts were very pixelated. Like, I did not like the look. Uh, I was a total believer in... Uh, you know, retina air quote retina displays when, whenever possible. So, or when they came out, when Linux can take
1: my 1440 P monitor and make it look as professional as anything I've seen. And
2: they plug it into a Mac and it looks like, you know, pile of crap. (laughs) But then you got the inverse, which is in my opinion, Mac on a, on a, you know, a high DPI monitor looks very sharp, very good. And then Linux
0: does not at least the, yeah, if you setup. if you're doing Retina, if you want high DPI, get a Mac. Everything else looks like garbage on high DPI monitors. If you don't want to do high DPI, do not get a Mac. <laughs> <laughs> so I dug into it. My my thin client that I bought um, on a whim on eBay is an HP T630, and I immediately put more RAM. Because it takes SODEMs and more, uh, an M2, uh, a larger M2 SSD into it, and honestly, it can watch YouTube videos just fine, full screen, all that on a standard def monitor. Like all, it's, it's great. It doesn't have a fan. It's really, really cheap. Um, I mean, I the concept
1: I of a Raspberry Pi that's bolted to the back of my monitor.
0: Is Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think my total outlay for that thin client was eighty bucks. And it's cheaper than
1: a Raspberry Pi.
0: So if you're not going the laptop stage, if you're not doing the I'm building a portable machine to take with me to connect to all this magic, and you just want another place in the house or wherever to set up a machine that that can talk to the rest of the network, and you have a monitor, like you do not have to spend a lot of money on these things. They are they're coming out of corporations' ears as they, as they upgrade. upgrade. It's just
1: the spare monitors. I mean, I've got several monitors myself, but let's just say I don't lug those things around.
0: So I'm going to throw some stuff into the show notes. Um, there's a hobbyist guide to Amazon workspaces that I do not have the author's name in front of me, wrote a couple of years ago, and it was definitely a, a hobbyist's approach to this problem. Um, they talk through the pricing. They talked through all the other things. And some real-world experience. So if you're going to go down this path, it's a really good kind of thing to read through. Um, Some cautions about if you're doing the hourly versus the monthly pricing. Apparently, the hourly pricing will eat you alive very quickly, and it does not convert into the... You know, once you've spent the monthly price, you just hit the monthly price. No, you, you you, you pay the hourly fee, and it's five times the price for a month if you run it the whole month. So be careful there. There's, there's things like that in this article. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows you've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins.
2: Thanks, and good night.
1: VT100's forever.